Welcome to Profiles and WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, writers, and public figures and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Jill Lepore, the David Woods Kemper 41 professor of American history at Harvard University and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Much of her scholarship explores absences and asymmetries in the historical record with an emphasis on the histories and technologies of evidence and of privacy. And in March 2016, she delivered two patent lectures on those topics at Indiana University. Her essays delve into American history, law, literature, and politics. And her most recent books include Joe Gould's Teeth, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, and Book of Ages, The Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin. She's currently at work on a history of the United States. Jill Lepore, thank you for being with us today on Profiles. Hey, thanks for having me. So you were a field hockey player and a a math major. You can't ask me about field hockey. (laughs) Who was admitted to Tufts University on an ROTC scholarship. Um, What happened to set you on the path to becoming a writer and a historian? Uh, Well, I was a a very surly teenager, and I didn't want to go to college. It seemed very expensive. We couldn't afford it. I didn't see the point. Couldn't I just stay home and read books? (laughs) And I made this grim compromise with my mother that I would apply to a single school, which just happened to be a school some girl down the street had visited. (laughs) So I applied to Tufts. We didn't have any money, so I had to. if I was going to go, I had to get funding. So I applied to Mm. ROTC, and I got an ROTC scholarship with the Air Force. At the time, to be in the Air Force ROTC program, there were only certain sets of things you could study, mostly mm-hmm. engineering, like aerospace mm-hmm. engineering. And I, I didn't think I could pull that off, but I so I majored in math. I loved ROTC, actually, but I was pretty unhappy in school because I had always just wanted to be a writer and, and to spend my time reading. So college was in some ways what I thought it was, which wasn't a really a good fit for me. But anyway, freshman year, I got a letter in the mail that my mother had forwarded to me. And when I opened it up, it was in my own handwriting. And I'd completely forgotten. This is apparently a very conventional assignment now. But when I was in high school, I had this groovy, Berkeley-trained English teacher who was an incredible poet and a great man. And he asked us, he one just random assignment he gave us was to write a letter to ourselves in the future. And and he said that he would mail them to us. And I, I you know, I wrote some something then forgot about it or completely forgot about it. So I opened up this letter when I was, I guess it was a freshman, it was end of freshman year. And it was this horrible scream from my 14-year-old <laughs> self. It was this terrible lecture. You know, the kind of pious moral purity that teenagers have? Mm-hmm, yeah. And it was a terrible lecture <laughs> being scolded <laughs> by my 14-year-old self. About, I know the kinds of compromises and stupid decisions you would have made. You're such a loser. Uh, and, well, it was actually also true. I mean, it was not a stupid 14-year-old um, uh-huh. because I had made a bunch of compromises, and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, and I was pretending I was something that I wasn't because it was easier to get by that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I ended up, you know, ended up leaving ROTC, which was a really hard decision, and stopping playing field hockey and dumping my boyfriend and changing my major. But more, I mean, in, an, in a deeper way, that experience helped me think that I really er, – led me to believe – that there was something really powerful about the way the past speaks to us. That it was just a few years back, and and here was a document that preserved like a, a like a frozen in time, time capsule, the me that once was. It was me and not me, and and it had remained. And I, I that's why I study. The, I was never a person who like want to study history, like collected Civil War memorabilia, that kind of person. I was a person just really interested in what we carry with us into the present from the past. 
you have three children. Have you advised them to write these letters to themselves? Or they... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't take my advice because they're just like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be very interesting to see how they how they uh, evolve the choices that they they make. You've described yourself as a historian who likes to write about people who are unknown, and uh, one such person, uh, unknown to many readers, I think, was Jane Franklin, Ben Franklin's sister. Uh, in discussing your book about her, you said. I wanted to tell Jane's story as a way to ask readers to think about how history gets written, what gets saved and what gets lost, what gets remembered and what gets forgotten, and what the consequences are of each of these choices. What drives the choices that writers of history make? Well, mainly the writers of history are, are stuck with what survives. So our evidence is half-baked and scattered and partial and not representative and pretty meager. So if you're a biologist, you can conduct an experiment. You can produce your own evidence. You know, that's the big difference between the sciences that some in biology is essentially a, a historical study. You're sort of looking at change over time when you study biology. But you can create your own future. <laughs> so you can create I even mean, you can study remains, you know, mm-hmm. fossil evidence or you know, there are all kinds of life sciences people who are using what survives from the past, and it's a scattered... And so we think about the fossil record, how imperfect that is, and how any new finding can really change what we know. There's you know, been recently some really interesting discoveries with regard to um, primates and humans mm-hmm. and the different variety of, of the relationship between Homo sapiens and other humanoids. And, you know, every little finding really changes what you think. But, but mo- like a chemist can do an experiment. Historians can't do that. We, we're, we're dealing with something that's not unlike the fossil record. It's completely partial. And what survives, you know, there just was mud that day or, you know, this was preserved in amber. It's just as random and arbitrary as the survival of the fossil record. And yet we don't pay, I don't think we pay enough attention to that. But, and one way in which it's not random is that people who were wealthy and knew how to read and write and owned things that were durable are far better represented in the historical record than people who are poor Mm -hmm. and especially people who didn't know how to read and write. And we talk a lot in our present day about the persistence of forms of inequality, economic inequality, Mm -hmm. political inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality. And yet we have a really impoverished understanding of those forms of inequality because anytime we write history from the existing historical record, we're really just reproducing those forms. We're, mm-hmm. we're actually not able to, to apply scrutiny to inequality in the past because the historical record is so unequal. <laughs> so most of my work has been really about trying to sort of think about creative ways to fight against that, to say, let's not just take for granted. Okay, it's true. Women did not, were not taught, girls were not taught to write until after the American Revolution, until the end of the 18th century. And so you say, well, there really aren't a lot of writings by women. So um, we couldn't really know that. Uh, and, and to be fair, most historians have not really cared, right, up, and, up until sort of the revolution in historical writing and then, you know, later decades of the 20th century. People are like, okay, history is the story of the kings and of presidents and of battles and of popes and of marches. And if you think that history is something different, where are you going to find out what it, where you, what's your evidence going to be? Well, you can find a lot of evidence of people like women who do not know how to write and who were poor in the aggregate. Like for, in Boston in the 18th century, there was the, there was a poorhouse and they kept records, the records of the overseers of the poor. And you can you could do kind of a quantitative study. You, at what age did women enter the poorhouse? How many children did they have? What did they, how, how many days did they stay there? 
when they left, how many of their children had died during their time in the poorhouse. You can reconstruct mortality rates and infant mortality rates and age at marriage and age at... There's a lot you can do in a kind of statistical way. But you can't... You know, it's really so frustrating because that, uh, that's really important work and it's been done, you know, by a generation of incredibly clever and hardworking social historians who've, you know, compiled all this demographic data. But a reader who goes into a bookstore and wants to get a history book, like, generally is kind of drawn to a biography. Like, they want to really get close to somebody, you know, so they're going to mm-hmm. read a book about John Adams or about Harriet Truman or Lyndon B. Johnson. And because those people are powerful and they led interesting lives, but also just because they can be captured by a biographer. So I decided to write about Jane Franklin because she actually left enough behind that she can be captured in that way. Your New Yorker essay, The Prodigal Daughter, discusses your mother's life and how you came to write the book about Jane Franklin. Uh, And I wondered how much, how often does a historian's personal history influence their writing of public history? Is, Is there a history of the historian that's often hidden in the histories that they write? Yeah, and I don't think it's that deeply hidden usually. It's more conventional that we can see in fiction. You know, it's con- we understand most first novels are autobiographical. Right. You, you know, I'm sure you've talked to many authors about their first novel and right. that it was autobiographical, and maybe they never published it because it was troubling to them in that way, or maybe they did, and now they're just stuck trying to figure out a life that they didn't lead and <laughs> how to write about it. Um, but historian bi- biographers in particular have a very intimate relationship with their subject, and that is in some ways one of the big dangers of biography. So there's this great, um, remember years ago, Joseph Ellis wrote a biography of Thomas Jefferson that won the National Book Award. It was called American Sphinx. It's quite a beautiful book. Mm -hmm. And in the preface, Ellis writes about how he just felt so close to Jefferson. They both grew up in Virginia. They both had red hair. He had a portrait of Jefferson in his office. And he just knew Jefferson. And one of the things he just knew, he says, I, I believe in this purpose, he just knew he could never have had sex with Sally Hemings and had children with her. Because <laughs> he just knew him, because he understood him, because of who he, because of who he, Ellis, was. And <laughs> he was to, like you know, psychically communing I, yeah. with the... Well, you get, you get kind of close to people. You spend sure, so much time with them. Sure. And to Ellis's great credit, after all the DNA evidence came out and the, the incredible archival research of Annette Gordon-Reed, my colleague, he wrote a new preface and said, okay, I was wrong. Like, that is the danger of biography. You know, you... It's it's like the danger of therapy or something. It's kind of a transference problem. Well, that yeah, that's exactly uh, – that, that touches on something I was going to ask you about a little bit later, uh, uh, about something, a moment that occurs in your new book, uh, Joe, Joe Gould's Teeth. But I, I'll get to that in a little while because I want to I ask you uh, more about the book as well, but also just about how your – what does your research process look like? How do you organize all these materials and, and how do you find such interesting topics? Mm, there's sort of the same question. The finding of the topics and the doing of the research are kind of the same, usually the same work. I, I will often stumble into something and while looking for something else and decide, oh, this is actually really interesting. And not because I think, oh, I want to write something about it, but because I want to find out what <laughs> what happened. <laughs> then my process is basically nuts. It's mm-hmm. immersive. It's insane. It's unremitting. It's entire and consuming. And I, I mean, I, I go on what I think of as research benders where I just, Mm -hmm. all I can do is like, I just can't stop hunting for something. And it, and you know, the more you look and the more you talk to archivists and curators and the more people know you're working on something, the more likely something's going to kind of fall your way that you didn't even know existed before. The Jane Franklin book had a very particular and long gestation. It's really uncommon for me because I was quite reluctant to write the book. Mm -hmm. 
Well, years ago, when I was first becoming a colonial historian, I went to the library and I read the complete papers of Benjamin Franklin. This is the kind of thing I would do. Like when I was a kid, you know, you know, I'd read like Beverly Cleary and I'd be like, okay, well, I have to read all of Beverly Cleary. Like you, <laughs> it would just be so satisfying because you could yeah. you could bike to the town library and just you'd always know there'd be another Rufus and <laughs> Ramona and Henry and whatever that there would be. If you were in a series, you could just you could relax as a reader. Do you know that feeling? <laughs> no, yeah, I was like in like, the third grade with the Hardy Boys. Yeah, yeah and you're like, there's so much of it, and then you book. get to yeah. the end, like, yeah. oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with a historian, I'm the same way. So someone like I love Benjamin Franklin's writing. He's incredibly mm. charming. He's so earthy and he's hilarious and he's so smart and he's just he's just so mischievous on the page. So I went to the library and I read all of his papers, and I was really struck that you know every other letter he wrote seemed to be to his sister Jane, and, his, and and then I went and looked, like, did anybody ever write about Jane? And Carl Van Dorn had written this quite loving, sort of almost like a eulogy to her. But there's really very little, um, and Anne Fior Scott had written a quite wonderful essay about her. But both of those scholars knew that there was something really important in Jane's story, but they couldn't figure out, you know, they didn't make a commitment to it or they didn't have the, they didn't dedicate themselves to it in a, in a like, kind of lifelong way, the mm-hmm. way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I just... Dug and dug and dug and dug and dug for the read the letters that Jane left behind, and then just went hunting for any anything else, especially things. It was really important to me to find um, objects that she might have held, mm-hmm. uh, which is mm-hmm. something I don't always feel about mm-hmm. people I'm writing about. But I I had a very particular intimacy with her. You did a lot of interesting digging for your your most recent book, a book that sheds new light on a, a legendary pair of New Yorker articles by Joseph Mitchell and their subject, Joe Gould, uh, who was an early 20th century bohemian who purported to be writing what he called an oral history of the world, a, a massive multi-million word transcription of various everyday conversations uh, that he'd overheard. In the second 1964 article, Joe Gold's Secret, which was published more than 20 years after Mitchell's original New Yorker profile of Gold and seven years after Gold's death, Mitchell made the claim that there was no oral history, uh, that Gold had conceptualized it in his head perhaps, but that it didn't really exist on paper beyond a handful of anecdotes. Uh, And Mitchell is a a valorized, venerated writer who's strongly associated with the history of The New Yorker, a magazine for which you now write. What made you think that there was more to the story than what's indicated in Joe Gold's secret? So I had read the two essays are bound together in a book that was published in 1965 and is available in paperback. And I'd read it years ago and adored it. Mm -hmm. And so I I was going to teach a class in biography at Harvard, and I'd never taught it before. And it was for sophomores. It was really a research seminar, and they had to write a biographical essay that they'd do in their own research paper. So I wanted to assign a couple of examples of biography, but I couldn't assign, like, a big book. So I thought, oh, I'll assign those Joe Gould essays by Joseph Mitchell because they illustrate so much about the biographical art because it's a recantation, because the first profile that Mitchell wrote of Joseph Gould in 1942 said one thing, and then in 1964, when he writes Joe Gould's Secret, he says, actually, I was, it was wrong. And here's, here's kind of what happened and why I, and then also why I, I kept this a secret for so long. So I just thought it would be great in undergraduate class discussion. Also, I make a big prayer of assigning things that are beautifully written because I think students just kind of like they lap that in and mm-hmm. then they produce better work. So I was getting ready for class, and I reread. I, I had irresponsibly put it on the syllabus without rereading, and I had read it. I don't know, you know, years yeah, and years, decades yeah, before. Yeah. And I reread it, and I was, you know, reminded again of why I had assigned it as so beautiful. But I had forgotten that a lot of the story had to do with Harvard. That Gould said he had graduated from Harvard in 1911, and that he supposedly carried this will around in his uh, coat pocket, in which he said that although the oral history of 
couldn't be published during his lifetime, that at his death he had willed it, two-thirds of it to go to Harvard and a third to go to the Smithsonian. And I was reading this, and then I read the, you know, reading this, and it actually just sounded to me a little bit fishier than I ever remember the story sounding. And it raised a lot of evidentiary questions for me. Was the will also just an imaginary piece of paper, or had people seen that will? And if there was such a will... Then wherever Mitchell, wherever Gould died, you know, he died in a mental hospital, but it would have been probated. So shouldn't I look for a probate, like, probate inventory? Oh, well, for that matter, my students are going to ask because, you know, there's Harvard students and they're, they're going to sort of identify with the locality of the situation. And the, the Harvard library is like, like 10 paces from where, the classroom where I was teaching. The they're going to say, well, maybe it's there. Like maybe maybe it did exist and maybe it's the Harvard Library. It's got like miscatalogued or something. It's lost in the library. And there's a kind of um, deliciousness to the curiosity, in fact, that, that Mitchell is playing with. That um, And it turns out a lot of readers wrote to him and said, uh, you know, I bet you, there's another place you should look because uh, there had been this long search for it. So I went to the library, uh, and the first thing I did was I just went to the Harvard, the college archives where we keep mm-hmm. records of students, and I pulled out Joe Gould's student records. And a student record file from the 19-teens is usually like a file folder with a piece of paper in it that's like the transcript. And then maybe there's like a, a note from the dean about, you know, he should be able to get credit for this other course. or You know, it's maybe two pieces of paper. Joe Gould's academic record folder is probably four inches thick, and it's <laughs> oh crammed, gosh. crammed, yeah. crammed with these sheets of paper with Joe Gould's, you know, I came to recognize this as his handwriting, handwriting, all the like, the guy could not stop writing. So it's just this massive, massive record of his undergraduate years, and I, you know, scanned it kind of quickly, and I began taking photographs, and I, and then brought it to class the next day, photocopies of all this, and we just kind of divided into groups and tried to puzzle it out, and it turns out... Just in that one file folder, there's a whole lot that contradicts anything that anybody had ever said or reported about Joe Gould. Most of all, things that Joe Gould himself said, but including things that anybody else had ever written about him. And I don't know, I just kind of got bitten with curiosity by that because Gould's project is so similar to my own commitments as a historian. Like he was trying to correct the asymmetry of the historical record. You know, he he wanted to write down what people say so that ordinary people's lives could be preserved, so that historians could write about ordinary people. Like that is when he he talks very beautifully about why ordinary lives matter. Yeah, he seems kind of like a precursor of history from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely. He's very much a kind of like Jacob Reese meets Alan Lomax, you know, kind of collect or John Lomax kind of collect folk tales and folk music and take photographs of ordinary. Like, it's a kind of documentary populism. It's a little bit uh, before the kind of 1930s, maybe, say, mm-hmm. the um, the WPA work. Right, He'd right. been doing it much earlier. Right, yeah, yeah. And you say, I think you say in your book, he, he actually can, uh, you can possibly attribute the term oral history to him, right? The- yeah, you can. In, in, in fact, the, the, the first oral history organization is the Oral History Research Center at Columbia. It's founded in 1948 by the historian Alan Nevins. And his st- I actually went and talked to them, and I read through Nevins's paper. They all admit that it's Gould who comes up with the term oral history. Yeah. And it starts this whole movement, ultimately. Yeah, which is an interesting and kind of uh, positive aspect of the Joe Gould story. But also, I wanted to ask you about how in, in Mitchell's profiles, uh, he's depicted first in the 1942 New Yorker article, I think, as an eccentric, perhaps even kind of charming, interesting Greenwich Village bohemian. Uh, and in the later 1964 piece, more as kind of a sad case or a victim of his own folly or delusions. Uh, but in your book, Joe Gold's Teeth, we get a different and I think sometimes disturbing sense of who Gold was. Uh, what did you find that wasn't there in Mitchell's prior portraits? Well, Mitchell says... 
I don't think he says it in the portrait, but he says it in interviews and correspondence that to him, in the second profile, that Gould was a hero to him and he wanted readers to think of him that way, that it was a heroic thing, uh, even in his delusion, to imagine that he had created something beautiful and that Mitchell identified with that. That was in a kind of, in a sort of deep poetic way, that the best of who we are is to imagine that we create beauty in the world Mm -hmm. and that we make art of lasting importance or do work of great importance. And Mitchell didn't think that was delusional in that sort of clinical way. He wanted to think about how how lovely that was. Mm. And so the the reason that people love that Joe Gould secret story and the reason I love it too and, and is is a kind of parable about art. And what was hard for me once I started digging around and even that first day reading Gould's actual letters He's certainly not a hero to me, someone I really worried about from the very start. Like the letters, I mean, I get letters from undergraduates. I get emails from students all the time. A lot of them were from students from him when he was a student to faculty. They're they're really creepy and concerning. And so you wor- you really, really worry about him. And it turned out, you know, it was immediately clear he never graduated. He didn't graduate in 1911. He was kicked out because he was he had a breakdown. He was a, he was extremely unhappy and ill. And I, I just, I was really puzzled by that. Like, was that so unseeable by Mitchell, who was so smart and such a keen observer? And so then it seemed to be a double secret. He couldn't have not seen that Gould was mentally ill and that, he, and that Gould was suffering, that it wasn't really beautiful. I mean, it, it must have seemed to him often to have been ugly. And... So then the second profile seemed to me just as much a kind of papering over of Gould as the first one. The reason I didn't want to keep digging was I love Mitchell's work, and I I, I didn't want to kind of be fact-checking Joseph Mitchell. That wasn't my point. I was really only interested in Gould. In fact, the project that he purported to be doing could really only be done by someone who was pretty much mentally ill. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I began, I began entertaining the possibility, just purely for the sake of the exercise, that the oral history might exist. Because if everything that was known about him was wrong, then among the things that's known about him is that he never wrote this right. incredibly important documentary history of Harlem and Greenwich Village. And... So I thought, well, now I really actually have to look because what if it does exist? Like I, I, that was my my first instinct was to try to find it, and I I went to great lengths there. But the more I on the way to for looking for it, I had to get to know Gould really well, and the, it was extremely unpleasant getting to know Gould really well because I mean this is why people tend to write biographies of people they deeply admire and love, and in fact, it, kind of that's usually the problem with a biography. He's a person in great pain and misery, and he's he's sort of a hateful character, too. And he became clear to me that he was also a violent person. And there would be these sort of moments when I could see how other people saw him, and I would be relieved to see they saw him the same way. After the first profile came out in 1943, Gould became extremely famous, and people read, read that book all the time. And a couple of Harvard students, like student reporters for the Harvard student newspaper, which is called The Crimson, went to New York to interview him. They found him in a bar, and they write this scathing article about him. And they say, you know, inevitably Joe Gould will appear in a Reader's Guide Digest story that will be titled Joe Gould, the, the most lovable man you've never met. 
and and then the writers say Joe Gould is not a lovable old man. I mean, he was a scary, violent drunk and yeah. and a kind of madman. And so it would be sort of a relief to see that other <laughs> other people <laughs> saw him that way. But most of my time, I spent reading his letters. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. Our guest today is Harvard American history professor and New Yorker staff writer Jill Lepore. Well, one of the things that's disturbing, and it's something else that that is a missing uh, a, a missing element in your in the story that you tell, is his kind of it's not even kind of his stalking and harassment of Augusta Savage, uh, who was an African American sculptor uh, whose art uh, sadly has not really survived for the most part. Uh, she apparently destroyed uh, much of what she made, or it's quite possible she destroyed much of what she made. Uh, other art that she made has just gone missing or was not preserved by others. Um, what role does she play in this in this book about Joe Gold? So Augusta Savage was, for a long time, the most influential artist in the Harlem Renaissance. She was a sculptor. Um, she hung out with Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and people that you've maybe heard of uh, more and know more about because Savage is fairly mysterious because she destroyed a lot of her work and her a lot of her work is lost and also because she quite mysteriously left New York in the early in the 1940s and never returned and so died in poverty and obscurity and is considerably forgotten i found her fairly late in my search for the oral history it it became clear almost immediately that Gould was obsessed with black women that he was obsessed with sex across the color line and so there were a lot of clues early on. I was kind of working through his life chronologically. There were a lot of clues early on that this was a this was the creepiest of his several obsessions. And I then I began to find references to in fact it, there's a history of the WPA the the Federal Writers Project where the writer makes reference to the fact that Gould famously stalked an African American artist. But the artist is not named in the footnote is not helpful. <laughs> and so I kept – I would bump up in Gould's material but also just in secondary stuff, this sort of odd uh, sort of shadowy reference to everybody knows that the real story with Gould was that he was obsessed with this black artist. And I couldn't figure out who she was. And it was a point in my research where I really wanted to abandon the project because it was just mis- – it, really, like it was miserable. It's very unhappy. <laughs> Because you're sort of like your own literary hero is looking more questionable to you. And then you're having to spend time with this creepy, you know, sad (laughs) person. And you just sort of want to let it go. There are a lot of projects I start and I just let go because it's too too sad or too ugly. But once I figured that out about this artist, I just felt like 
I couldn't bear that she had been so scrubbed from the historical record that no one was even willing to name her. Like, what had happened? What, like, you know, you could hire, like, reputation.com to scrub something from, you know, but it's not going to be very (laughs) successful. But you can really erase people uh, from a paper record. And so that just me, I just, I started really thinking about, you know, when you sort of circle around a dangerous man and pretend that he's adorable you allow, and he's hurting somebody, you're really allowing him to continue to hurt somebody. And we, like, we see that all the time. In the, you know, in the, in we're, it's more visible and legible to us, and people are more alarmed by it and likely to take action. But the racial politics of the 20s, 30s, and 40s would have been really different um, for a bunch of white writers to be writing about how charming and funny Joe Gould was. That didn't in any way suggest that they didn't also know that he was also very scary to black women. And what kind of recourse would she have had? So I just got... <laughs> I got my dander up. <laughs> and just wanted to bring that into the to the story because, yeah, it does seem like it's an, a hugely important part of the story. Yeah, I wanted to find out who she was, first of all, and that took a long time. And then I wanted to find out what had really, what had really happened, and that also took a long time. And I, didn't, I don't think I ever fully got to the bottom of it. I mean, I hope that, that someone will write an incredibly powerful biography of Augusta Savage because there isn't one, and there should be, and it would be a great book. You went to Saugerties, which was a place where she had moved to and lived for a while, and you wrote a really nice uh, passage about your experiences there. And I wanted to ask if you could maybe read that for the program, the last paragraph of that chapter. Um, I'll just say that once I got to the point where I found out who Savage was, the whole search changed. I was no longer really looking for the oral history. I was just trying to find what Augusta Savage survived. And um, she had moved to Saugerties, New York, in the early 40s and and really lost touch with her former friends from Harlem. But I went up and and met with this lovely woman who owns Augusta Savage's old house in Socrates. And she had arranged for me to, and her, her, her father had known Savage very well. And so she arranged for me to speak to neighbors uh, who lived in the neighborhood and who remembered Savage. In Socrates, she moved into a house on a small farm owned by the commissioner of public welfare. The house had no electricity. It had no plumbing. She used kerosene for light and wood for heat. She scratched together a hard scrabble living. She raised pigeons and grew flowers and mulled wine. Most of all, she raised chickens. It has taken me a very long time, my whole life, to learn that the asymmetry of the historical record isn't always a consequence of people being silenced against their will. Some people don't want to be remembered or heard or saved. They want to be left alone. People in Saugerties told me she'd chosen their town to move to because the little boy in Harlem who'd been the subject of gammon was from their town and his family lived there. Maybe it was his family that arranged for her to move into the welfare department's bare little house on the side of a hill. She took a job working at a research laboratory taking care of the mice. The man who owned the laboratory built her a studio on that hill and provided her with clay year after year so that she could still make art. A man who'd grown up next door told me he met Savage when he was five years old and that she taught him to fish. She'd cut down a cane and tie a line and they'd go sit down at the beaver brook. When she got too old to fish, he'd go fishing and bring her his catch. A woman who lived across the street told me that friends of Savage's would take the bus up from New York from Harlem to visit. Late at night in summer, Savage's neighbors would sit on their front porches to listen to the sounds coming from Savage's front porch. Their talk was like music. Their laughter was like fireworks. 
That's from Jill Lepore's book, Joe Gold's Secret. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. Jill Lepore, our guest, is a Harvard American history professor and New Yorker staff writer. There's a moment in this book when you're speculating about something regarding Augusta Savage, and then you stop and you say, Augusta Savage was not me. And this kind of circles back to something you said yeah. earlier in our conversation about the danger of of historians and biographers identifying too strongly uh, with their subject. Uh, I think you kind of raised that issue maybe to some extent, too, with J- Joseph Mitchell uh, projecting maybe a, a, a version of himself into, into Joe Gold. What are some of the other uh, traps that a historian has to look out for? Or dangers, hazards. Yeah. Oh gosh, there are a lot of traps. I I do think there's a real role for empathy in the writing of history, and so it's knowing where that line is between working really hard to exercise your moral imagination. That is to try to understand how someone else understood the world in which they lived and how they felt about it and how they thought about it. And that's you know that's the elemental act of what a historian does, and that that is really important and. and it, it's just a question of believing that how you understand the world transcends time and the different sensibilities and different and transcends culture in particular. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was working on a book uh, years ago about a slave rebellion in New York City in 1741. It's something very few people knew about. Every black man in New York was arrested and interrogated. And uh, if you didn't confess, you went to trial. And if you went to trial, you were found guilty. And if you then still didn't confess, you were burned at the stake. So 13 black men were burned at the stake in New York City in 1741, and 17 more were hanged. These these are not people who knew how to read and write. But the court conducted a very thorough investigation, so all the confessions and all the trial transcripts survive. The confessions were taken down, transcribed by the people that were conducting the interrogations. And earlier historians looking at those confessions determined, not unreasonably, this is all trash, how could we possibly use this? You know, there's there are several hundred confessions, I think, ultimately, because some people confess more than once. So a lot of texts, a lot of words that allegedly came out of the mouths of these guys. But it's just so coerced. <laughs> you're, you, if you don't confess, you're going to burn at the stake. Like, people are going to lie. And it's transcribed. It's not something the person wrote. And most of these guys didn't, a lot of them didn't speak English. So it's translated. And sometimes there were two or three, maybe they spoke Dutch, you know. Maybe they spoke Akan. So maybe they needed another Akan speaker who spoke, also spoke English. You know, it was really complicated, contaminated historical record, we would say. And I felt that, I, while I could understand that decision, that we couldn't afford to just throw all that away. So I designed this entire research project to figure out what of these confessions was was savable. And like I built like a little sieve. Like I pour the confessions into and catch only the things that were possibly true. And they were all the incidental things. Like someone would say, well, on my way to join the conspiracy, I stopped at my friend Cuffy's house and we played marbles in the street. <laughs> well, I don't think the marbles are not true. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and then it'd be yeah. like, oh, well, they would say, like, how do you know Cuffy? Well, Cuffy's my cousin. My, his mother and I, his, his mother and my mother came over from Jamaica together. And so there'd be these incidental details. And so I, I think a real error and an understandable one, though, but is, 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 is giving up too soon on the historical record. So I was really tempted to say you couldn't possibly write a book about the 1741 slave rebellion because <laughs> the confessions are just so coarse. Mm-hmm. But worked really hard to find a way to to gather some stuff but then you can't you can't guess what that was like to feel 
to what what it felt like to play marbles. You know what I mean? Right, like right. it's not actually the same. Like those, it could be a really different game. It could be inflected by some game from Jamaica that had been devised that brought the was a carryover from uh, from Ghana. I mean, we don't really know. You know, right. so it's there's you have to work hard to save what you can, but you have to work equally hard to not bring what you are to it. You've also said in in past remarks that in terms of understanding things, you've said, what is more urgent to understand than inequality? And I wanted to ask, why is that the most urgent thing to understand? Well, it's urgent to me, but I do think it's urgent to our politics, to the set of arrangements by which we order our lives, that it is something that history ought to be able to contribute to, that historians ought to be able to provide evidence that could illuminate this question. Because what what people are really interested in, in a kind of social science and policymaking way about forms of inequality, is not why they exist at this moment, but why they persist. So that is actually a historical question. And yet historians have very little insight to offer to it because we just accept the inequality of the historical record. So that's what I mean about it. I mean, so we're constantly trying to make decisions about, oh, you know, the carceral state and uh, how we think about the disproportionate rates of imprisonment across race. And we have a, a short sense of the history of that because there's a lot of aggregate data about that. We can, you, could, you could trot out a lot of numbers. But what if someone had gone and done some incredible range of interviews with black and white men in prisons in the 1940s and 50s? It would, ha- it would actually be a really interesting set of, set of data for us to analyze. And I think that's the kind of work that we should be doing uh, instead of abdicating a lot of that work to policymakers um, whose understanding of what the forces of historical change are is going to be limited by the policies that they care about. Mm -hmm. So I just, I guess I think that history has a lot to offer to the consideration of present day problems. And we have a, historians, academic historians as a guild have a, have a real aversion to doing that work because it violates one of our guild rules, which is never commit the sin of presentism. Presentism is when you take a present day problem and you go to the past and find a, find evidence that could support the position you hold about mm-hmm. how to solve the problem. Right. And that is a, that is a problem. Um, that's what politics is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why, you know, if you're a staffer for any member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and you're trying to, you know, defend a position to not hold hearings about Garland, you're not actually conducting a genuine inquiry into the historical record to, right. to see what is precedent here. You're actually just looking for You're instances that for will hold, that yeah. will uphold your position. That's right. what politicians do. Historians can't do that. That would be really mm-hmm. wrong. But nevertheless, we could do an inquiry where we're driven by the set of standards and methods with which we undertake all of our projects. And I think that is valuable. You're listening to Profiles and WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. Our guest today is Harvard American history professor and New Yorker staff writer Jill Lepore.
you wrote a really interesting book that came out in 2014 that I think kind of touches uh, on on it's certainly on the the inequality and gender issue. Uh, the book, your book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, which uh, explored the people and the circumstances. Uh, behind the origins of the superheroine who uh, first emerged in comic book culture of the 1940s. And the whole saga of its creation that unfolds in your book is is really fascinating, uh, that its creator, William Moulton Marston, also invented the lie detector. And he had a very unconventional family life that involved a relationship with the niece of Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of the uh, modern birth control movement, the organization that eventually became Planned Parenthood. I mean, wow. (laughs) uh, Beyond those fascinating narrative threads, why was this an important story to tell? Yeah, the narrative threads really were fun. It was a fun project to work on. I totally fell into this project inadvertently. I had been working on the history of the birth control movement because if you recall the last presidential primary season in 2011, all the GOP candidates had to sign what was called, and still is called, the Susan B. Anthony Pledge, saying that if they were elected president, they would defund Planned Parenthood. And there were also these videos, these uh, undercover videos at Planned Parenthood clinics. And so I, I was given the assignment uh, by The New Yorker to write something that would sort of explain where did, how do we get here about that? Like, what, it, what about a women's health clinic makes it so controversial? How did this become so politicized? And I think most people walking around have kind of a shorthand answer for that. Like, this has to do with abortion. It must have happened around 1973. But that actually isn't the right answer. That's not really what happened. And I didn't know what happened. I only had that shorthand. So I, I did a lot of reporting. I went and interviewed the head of Planned Parenthood, and I went to clinics, and I went to events. And, you know, I talked to people in the pro-life movement about how they understood Planned Parenthood. But what I mainly do is go to archives. <laughs> so I went <laughs> to Smith College, which has the archives of Planned Parenthood and has Margaret Sanger's papers. So I was working on all this stuff. There and it was really interesting. But meanwhile, I was also working on a separate research project on the history of the lie detector, and uh, which was created by this guy, William Moulton Marston, whose Wikipedia page at the time said basically, William Moulton Marston created the lie detector as a Harvard undergraduate in 1913 and in 1941 invented Wonder Woman. But he, and he also had two wives, and his wife Elizabeth Holloway and, and, and Olive Byrne. And I, that all stuck with me because that's like a kind of killer life. Like, that's like, like anyone would be like, okay, there's a huge story there. What is the story? And I did a whole lot of digging, but he was really elusive because it turns out his papers are, were mainly still in family hands. But anyway, when I was back in the Sanger papers, I kept finding correspondence from people in uh, Marston's family, Olive Byrne, who turns out to have been Margaret Sanger's niece, and, and her mother, Ethel Byrne who, with Margaret Sanger, founded the first birth control clinic in 1916 in Brooklyn. So I just had this kind of moment in the archives where I realized, piecing all these little bits together, and I nearly fell off my chair, that the Wonder Woman is Margaret Sanger. You know, (laughs) that her feminism, as odd as it is, is actually kind of an homage to the early feminist movements of the 19-teens, the suffrage movement of that era, and especially the birth control movement, which really starts in about 1914 when Sanger coins the term birth control. And I just thought, okay, this is, this story has everything <laughs> because there's all these you know, like really astonishingly strange people and arrangements and yeah. colorful tales. And it goes from, it's like a, it's just like a through line through all of America. And it goes from academic life and philosophy and experimental psychology through 
uh, Hollywood and the comic book industry, and then it's, it's got it's all It's amazing you're able to get it all into 300 pages. Yeah. I so, but then I, the reason I wanted to do it, I mean, I spent the night, I spent a lot of time trying to get up to speed with the history of comics, which I don't know very well, but and which is really interesting. But I, I, what I loved about the project is, you know, the the real revolution in historical writing in the last half century has been this incredible outpouring of research on the history of private lives and the history of women, the history of gender and sexuality, uh, the history of the family. And it doesn't really break out of the academy so that academic historians know a lot about the struggle for women's rights, but the public really doesn't. In the way that the public actually knows a fair amount about the civil rights movement, say, or even about the abolition movement. I think people kind of like you ask people, like, close your eyes and picture the civil rights movement. People can kind of come up with a lot of photographs. They picture the March on Washington. Yeah. They have a photograph yeah. of King. Like, they have a kind of repertoire of knowledge. But you ask people to close your eyes and think of the suffrage movement, people really don't have don't know the, 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 the nature of that struggle. Women chained themselves to the gates outside the White House. They went on hunger strikes. They were forcibly fed. You know, the, they, they marched in chains. And there, it's not because there wasn't photo, they weren't photographs then. It's just because we don't really teach that struggle. So what I loved was the idea of writing a book about Wonder Woman because people really care about Wonder Woman. Like, she's the most... She's the most iconic female pop figure that there is Oh, yeah, they're making a new globally. movie about yeah. her, right? And she's in the new Batman versus right, Superman movie. Right, right, right. She's getting she's, her own movie She's going to be year. all over the place yeah. even more soon. She's got this new kind of lease on life. And um, people really care about Wonder Woman, but they're not actually people who care very much about the history of feminism. Right. But I could write a book that they would read <laughs> <laughs> because it's so character-driven and plot-driven and crazy and madcap and fascinating but meanwhile, I could smuggle in this really important political history. Well, yeah, that actually is something I wanted to ask you about is that I, it seems to me, as somebody who's read a lot of, uh, I, I have a pretty deep interest in 20th century American culture and history. And it seems like in the mid 20th century, there was kind of a concept of the public intellectual. There was this notion that uh, writers and philosophers were engaged in, in mainstream uh, media discourse, although these public intellectuals are almost always white males. But there was still this concept that seemed to kind of maybe diminish in the latter decades as academic studies became very specialized and intellectuals seemed to be kind of uh, operating more in kind of these academic margins. And I wonder if you see your work as perhaps fulfilling a sort of modern, maybe 21st century concept of the public intellectual because of the kind of things you were just talking about, the, the, the writing you do for The New Yorker, the books you do, they're very academically grounded, solidly grounded. They would pass any academic muster, but they're also narratives that I think are, are, are a little more maybe accessible or engaging than a lot of the academic narratives, uh, purely academic narratives you might encounter about these topics. I do think it's really important for the, the knowledge that's produced within the academy to be shared outside the academy. I'm a little uncomfortable with the, the label of public intellectuals because the public sphere is so different than it was in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, what would that even mean to kind of import that term into this moment? I mean, I, I understand your question, but I'm fascinated when people say to me, when scholars say to me, well, it's interesting that you write for the public, but, you know, I you know, I, I write for my peers and that's that's what I do. And that's fine. Like a lot of the, most people should be doing that. Um, but it's helpful if some if if some number of the tribe also, you know, <laughs> ventures forth down to the waterhole and greets the other people uh, from other Comes tribes. From the academic you know? mountain with the, um, yeah, the I, I think it's important that like, yeah. it, it's good for the tribe. <laughs> you know? Like I'm a member of the tribe. I'm not some I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not abandoning. The, I, I love the tribe. But I'm also puzzled when people say 
that they they couldn't explain that work it that way because I well, what do you do in the classroom? Like what we do in the classroom <laughs> is actually exp- that that is our first and most important public are our, our undergraduate students. We live in a world where knowledge is being produced and explored and academic battles and provocations are being had and it's incredibly rich and exciting. But in the classroom, you're taking that and reshaping it into a form that can explain a discipline and a body of knowledge to young people who don't know anything about it and excite them and make them curious to learn more and to learn the methods of your discipline and to apply them to whatever they do in the world. Like, In what way is that not like addressing the public like that is <laughs> so um i love teaching and i and and what i love about it is a lot of the same things i love about writing and i find that doing the one makes me better at the other and so writing for the new yorker where i have this, this incredible blessing of being able to be apprenticed to this magazine where people really care about how to how to both do good work in the world and to do it beautifully has taught me a ton of, that actually then I always employ in the classroom. Like when I'm sitting down to think about how I'm going to deliver a lecture and construct something, how I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, it's like doing a crossword puzzle. Like where are the ideas all going to go? <laughs> that the puzzle still will be a cool puzzle. You know, I draw a lot on what I've learned in my experience, you know, learning from my editor and thinking about stories and what makes a good story and how can it deliver an argument and how can it be challenging and how to meet the reader where the reader's at and just the kind of things that is pedagogically you do all the time too. And I do think that's really important. And I think a lot of academics know, you know, b- believe that's really important. I-, I think the bigger and more troubling question is what are the, what are the places in the public sphere that really value that, that mm-hmm. actually will receive that? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where are those fora? You know, there were different places where you could publish those things right. in uh, a half century ago. And this, you know, this what, what people do posit is some sort of golden age, which is, of course, not right. uh, not really fair. Well, m- moving from a public to more of a private sphere, I, I, I really have to ask, having having read some of your books and read about your your ongoing life in general and everything, that you know, you're you're a Harvard professor, you're a writer for the New Yorker, you're a spouse, you're a parent of three. And I've heard that you do a great deal, if not all, of your own research, which sounds like an incredibly busy life. And I just wondered, what are the habits and the qualities that you think account for your success and your ability to lead uh, such a full life? Well, it's mainly kind of a zany, like, seat-of-your-pants kooky life that I lead. So I don't think it's it's not a model. Um, A lot of the things that I do have what, you know, in corporate speak uh, is uh, called synergy. synergy <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Like the teaching and the writing, it's not that I teach the content of what I'm writing. It's the it's the intellectual labor of explanation. It really comes through in a lot of things you write. You'll, you'll mention that you were discussing something with your students and it ends up turning into this this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love, I just, I, I love that time in the classroom. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a... It's a just kind of madcap. I have a since I was a little kid, I have to write constantly, or I become a really unpleasant person, which is one of the reasons I was so fascinated by Wait, Joe, Joe Gould. Gould. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, if it was, uh, if I smoked as often as I wrote, I would be dead, <laughs> <laughs> and people would recognize that it's 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 a very bad habit, and uh-huh. it's a vice, and it's an it's, it's it has an addictive quality to it. Uh-huh. But because it's writing, people think it's somehow virtuous. What's really different is that I used to write as constantly as I write now, but I would just never show anybody anything that I wrote. 
so that is different. But it's not like like oh, there was a time in my life when I didn't write the way I write mm-hmm. as constantly mm-hmm. as I write now. And I still throw most of what I write away because I just write too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, you, I, I would take it you must have a pretty uh, supportive home network with your your family. Do they <laughs> do they how do they deal with your obsessive uh, writing tendencies? There is this kind of bad thing that happens where sometimes <laughs> one of my kids will talk to me about something, and if I'm writing or thinking about writing, I don't actually hear anything <laughs> that anybody says, I and I sort of nod yeah, my yeah, way along. Yeah, yeah. And I'll have missed some crucial piece of information, right. like the lacrosse game starts at 5.30 today, not 6, so can you <laughs> make me a sandwich at 5, and then 5 o'clock comes, and, and oh no, you're I forgot about to make the sandwich. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that. But my work doesn't really have... We don't talk about it at home, because mm-hmm. it would be boring to everybody. Like, mm-hmm. it actually, it's bad enough that I... That, that I'm consumed by it, but like no one else cares. Like that's, and that's, I think that's really important. Like who cares? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just sort of more like, can you pick me up? Right, right. <laughs> My right. bike needs a new brake pad. What's for dinner? <laughs> like that. That's, and that's what it kind should be. Quotidian family. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. there's nothing precious about it. Like, well, I probably just have time, I think, to ask you one, one more, one more question. Um, and wanted to ask to imagine that it's, 2116, and uh, a young Harvard academic is working on a book about the noted 21st century historian and author Jill Lepore. Um, where should she or he go looking to reconstruct your story? How would you want them to reconstruct your story? Oh, I would so not want them to do it. No. <laughs> I, I systematically destroy my correspondence. I, I don't like leaving a trail behind. I don't like having— You don't the, want somebody like no, you coming along. no. No, because I see what people do. <laughs> I worry about because there are some some things I have that I I I haven't yet bothered to get rid of. Or but you know, but like I I delete all my email kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is a really stupid thing to do. I'm sure that'd be a challenge for future historians of anybody is how much more people email now as opposed to course you know writing right. letters that right be and most of it is just such dross. Whereas mm-hmm. the sifting that happens when you bother to sit down and write a letter with a quill with ink, it's we I do an exercise with students where we make ink and they have to write a letter on parchment with a quill. It takes forever. They can't even be bothered to say five <laughs> sentences. So, but it means that people are very careful about what they write in letters. And so the, in some way, the selection has already been done for you as a historian, whereas the stuff that we blurt out all the time, it would take a lot of sorting to go through to find what, what's meaningful. I'm glad I'm not the historian in the next century. I think it would be a very different kind of work. Well, I've been speaking today with historian and author Jill Lepore. Jill, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is David Brent Johnson for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.